I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. Uh, this one is going to be a little different because Lizzie and I are far apart and yet so close in spirit. We are doing this via Zoom, so if there's any delays or weird moments of awkwardness, please blame me or Zoom, but clearly never Lizzie because Lizzie is damn near perfect. Oh my God, that's very kind. I was going to say, everybody should blame me because we know that if one of us has technological deficiencies, it's me. <laughs> uh, absolutely not. Uh, so Lizzie, you we, we haven't done this in a long time. We haven't done Art Attack in a very long time. And we are back. We are back doing Art Attack. We're going to be doing it again. Uh, and I'd like to address the elephant in the room that's sitting on my neck, which is basically that a lot of people uh a lot of people love the show a lot of people feel polarized by the show and i don't think it has anything to do with you i think it has everything to do with me and it is because i am opinionated i have an opinion uh but what i want our viewers to understand is just tune in for lizzie and just block me out no <laughs> what i want what i want our viewers to understand is that uh i'm an artist i'm actually a painter uh, I deal with painting every day of my life. I deal with the business of art. I deal with the actual application of art. And so I have an opinion and I feel like we live in a day and age where you really can't have an opinion, where you can't say something negative about somebody because you get canceled. But the truth is I've already canceled myself. So nobody could cancel me. And, uh, and I'm going to continue to have an opinion. And I think that that's fine because Lizzie uh, also has an opinion. I think that she just has usually a more positive, uplifting uh, perspective and point of view. There's well, nothing wrong with that. that. Yeah, and I appreciate that introduction. I think that it is very unfair to cancel you for having <laughs> an opinion. And to me, the best art and likewise, the best kind of dialogical conversation is one that provokes your own thoughts. And so if you say something that feels provocative to somebody, then that helps them to better articulate their own beliefs. And so for me, there's tremendous value in that. And I think that my diplomacy, you speak about your opinions coming from your career. And I think that my diplomacy comes from my career because if I taught in a classroom and said, oh, this is Jeff Koons, what a piece of shit, that wouldn't be fair and it wouldn't be it would right. be accurate, you're right, but not fair. No. <laughs> well, I bring him up because he was actually an example of an artist that I really struggled with prior mm. to teaching him. And I thought, it is irresponsible of me to teach him through the mm. lens of my own opinion. I have to come up with something to excavate from the literature on Coons to find something that I connect to so that I'm able to teach him in an appropriately professorial way. And so that's just the way that I approach material, the way that you approach material is different. And I think that both are valid. And so for listeners, yeah. it's such a cool opportunity to just say, oh, well, I disagree with this and this is why. Yeah, you know, there's just a lot of comments like, oh, I can't listen to Bua, he's, you know, whatever it is. I mean, the reality, it all boils down to the fact that uh, I have a certain opinion, but people have to understand it's coming from a place of 
I, you know, I went to art school my entire life. I've sat through, a, you know, and I went to art high school. Not only just did I get a, a bachelor's of fine arts, uh, uh, but I also went to art high school and I taught at the University of Southern California. And I, honestly, I've taught all around the world. And even being on the United States Stamp Committee, which I was for four years, I also had an opinion. And people didn't like that either. I mean, it's just the reality is I, it's okay to have an opinion. And, and Lizzie, I think, softens it by offering a counter opinion. You just don't understand that Lizzie is opinionated because she couches it with very highfalutin words. And so you can't see how angry and bitter she is. <laughs> it's my way of razzle-dazzling you. If I say something that yeah. you don't understand, then yeah. malarkey, it sounds so beautiful, but really I'm calling you shit. <laughs> yeah. malarkey, is a, malarkey is a term that they used to use oftentimes on Abbott and Costello and, uh, and old television and animation actually as well. So Lizzie has chosen for our episode, the very famous, probably the most well-known sculptor, I think living today. He's still alive, he's 82 years old, born uh, 1938. I thought it was 1939, my mom's 1939, he's 1938. Uh, Richard Serra, who's an American sculptor. And I think he is pretty synonymous with legendary artist today. I mean, he's, he's up there with, you know, with all of them, really. I think he's up there with anybody that's, that's alive and, and really doing well in the auction world and, and doing well in the museum world. I think he's more than doing well. I think that he is etched into the annals of uh, Jansen and Gardner into the art history books. He is pretty, he is if you don't know Richard Serra, I think that you do know Richard Serra. You just have to kind of stop the podcast, look at Richard Serra, that's S-E-R-R-A, and then you'll be like, oh, that guy. And I know Lizzie's a, a huge fan, right? Am I wrong to say that? A huge I fan. You know that. Uh, yes. I, am, I am actually a huge fan. And what I love about Sarah, and the reason I thought that we should re-enter the world of Art Attack with his work uh, by investigating the controversies and the innovations is, first of all, we don't really talk about a lot of sculpture. And so I thought that this was a great opportunity to not only speak about somebody who has changed consciousness of art world sculpture, but also somebody who is still alive, who is still able to comment with such eloquence on his work and its legacy. And so I thought that this would be a great, a great type of, uh, of work to address. And I love Richard Serra personally because he doesn't cleanly fit into any kind of era of art. He is a little bit minimalist, a little bit processed, but more accurately, he represents this hybridized version of both. And I can give some historical context just to frame everything so we know where we are. And then we can talk about some of the particular works and the controversies. So in 1965, that's when minimalism entered into the art scene. And this was in sharp contrast and oppositional contrast to the work of the abstract expressionists. So these artists, they saw the hyper-masculinity and the intimacy and how personal and, 
and intense the works of Pollock and de Kooning at all were, and they wanted to create an opposite experience. They wanted the work to be distanced, to be cool and severe, and to eliminate their own personal touch. And so now we have an episode on the minimalists, but artists like Judd, uh, they typify the aesthetic of minimalism. And in that year, the introduction of the movement, we have the year that the US entered Vietnam. We have the Watts riots. We have Malcolm X's assassination. And do you see any of that history of contemporary violence in the work? Not at all. Everything is just devoid of context. And it's about the formal experience of viewing and feeling, but not feeling the artist's psychology, not feeling the gravitas of the world, but just checking in with the feelings of your own body. And so that is also true for the work of Richard Serra. However, his work, his sculptures, his public installations were site specific and they exist in the particular world in which they are now, for which they were created. And that is a really significant point of, a point of departure from his work and the minimalist. Because minimalism, you call up a fabricator, you say, this is what I want, and then somebody else made it. You are just the conceptor, you're not the executor. And with Richard Serra, he scrutinizes the spaces in which he works, and then he fabricates the actual piece. But he, there's this, this conversation between context and product. Let's take it back a little bit to contextualize perhaps why he arrived at the work that he did. Uh, Sarah was born in San Francisco. Uh, and from an, from an early age, I think that he like real great legends and people who thrive like Michael Jordan, they usually have an older brother who is better <laughs> than them, right? And so according to Sarah, I don't know if you know this, but he had a very attractive, uh, built, strong older brother. And so he's like, well, I'm not as attractive as him. I'm not as strong as him. What do I have to get the affection of my parents, right? Because clearly if the affection is going to go to his brother. So he started to draw and he realized that with drawing, his parents gave him a lot of attention, which is, you know, much like many artists lives, they do it to, they create because uh, they, a, a lot of, a lot of artists will tell you they create because they have to, because it's a calling and they create in their own little bubble and they'll do it no matter what. But the reality is they're creating to be recognized, to get the affection, to fill a hole, to get a woman, whatever that is. So Sarah did that to get the, the affection of his mom. And in fact, his mother used to bring him around uh, and, and they would, she would say, you know, this is my son, Richard the Artist. This is Richard the Artist. So right away, he was associated with like, wow, I'm really something special. And not only that, but I'm Richard the Artist. So he had a, you know, he had this self-identity of empowerment because of his skill set. Now, I don't know how well he drew as a kid. He said he drew really, really well. Uh, but it seemed like he definitely drew all the time and identified with it. And then, you know, he went all the way to, to Yale. And I think it was at Yale. That was significant, right, where he got his MFA, because that's where he met all of his teachers and 
you know, all of those people at that time, uh, Rauschenberg and, and those people who were very significant. I know you love Rauschenberg. I do not. But, I, but he met a lot of people that would be very significant. I don't know if he met Philip Glass, the minimalist uh, composer uh, at Yale. But I know that all of those people clearly influenced his life. And I think his, his greatest uh, patron influence, help, was always Leo Castelli. Because Leo Castelli, you know, obviously the guy who owned the, the big gallerist who owned two powerful galleries that made artists who they are, whether it was Warhol or Basquiat or Rauschenberg or Sarah, he really loved him. And he always gave him money to kind of, you know, he was really lucky in a lot of ways. I mean, his, his art was loved by his parents. And then he went on and was loved by his friends. He didn't really, I didn't see a lot of struggle in terms of his trajectory to become a, a painter. Usually you, you artists are really messed up psychologically, like comics. I feel like artists and comics are similar where they have really fucked up childhoods. And I feel like he had a lot of love everywhere, whether it was through his mom, through, through his peers at Yale, through Leo Castelli, Gagosian, and it keeps going on and on, which is re probably really great. And yet he has this kind of blue collar application right his father was at a steel mill he's got all this dilapidated steel and and yet he he works the process of his work is very blue collar it's interesting that is yeah there's so many tensions i guess with his biography which i didn't know any of that so thank you for sharing but also with the work itself and so i think that there is a harmony almost in that construct of opposing extremes and how he's able to exist within the liminality of both. And regarding the work, so the style that he is exploring is non-objective and so there's no representational forms. And when we think of sculpture, traditionally anyway, we may think of a Rodin where there are forms that are carved, even if there is ambiguity of that form, we recognize, okay, those are two figures kissing. However, with the Sarah, it's all just an exploration and a celebration of materiality and process. So he didn't think of a psychological theme, for instance, kissing, embracing, celebration of war heroes. He wasn't thinking about any of that. He approached the art making with a verb, to splash, to roll, to lilt, to whatever it is. So there yeah. is an action and then his material would accommodate that action. So for instance, there was an early work called Playing Cards, which I think is such a, an interesting use of a title because without the title, the viewer would be invited to just explore his or her own references. But once we know the title of the work, that's gonna inform our own interpretation. So for this particular work, he had huge, massively heavy, sheets of corrugated steel and I believe it was steel that he used for that but just this industrial material it's not the marble or the bronze of traditional sculpture but now we're talking about the materials of industry mm. and these these big sheets are balancing against each other and so there is this dialectic of balance and imbalance 
And one of the controversies came in this work because a fabricator, a person who installed it, he actually got trapped. One of the pieces fell on him and he ended up dying. Oh. And you would think that Sarah would be liable for that. But since, as we talked about, minimalists, they called in what they wanted. And so he wasn't personally responsible because he just ideated, but he didn't actually come up with the mechanisms of keeping the work safe. And so the fabricator was the one who was irresponsible with the safety precautions. So, so doesn't he work though with, in conjunction with a structural engineer? Cause he runs everything because they are such giant pieces. And incidentally, you know, these steels, fab these these steel panels are usually it takes about seven to ten years for these to oxidize and to get it to where he wants it and obviously he's not thinking of something ten years and then he gets it ten years later it's already done but these materials are specific materials to what he wants to do and he works with a structural engineer to ensure the safety because let's be honest, he's an artist, not a structural engineer. And so that, that's really interesting. Are you, you're not talking about fulcrum though, right? No, no, I'm talking okay. about, I think it's called House of Cards and it's an early work. So perhaps he started to deepen his relationship with structural engineers after the death of this man. But that okay. was one of the, or one of the first controversies. And then another one befell his career in the eighties when he received a public commission in New York City called Tilted Arc. And that is such a fascinating story because again, to root this information with historical context, public art before the late 60s was mm -hmm. all about commemorative sculptures of war heroes. Or sometimes mm -hmm. there would be mythological figures, but the statues that now we are re-examining because of their racist history, that is the only type of public sculpture that would be produced. And the NEA, the National Endowment of the Arts, it came up with this public art branch in 1966. And then it was more of an exploration of fine art in a public art context. Picasso did a piece in Chicago very early on. Calder did another piece. I also believe it was in Chicago. And then Richard Serra was among these early artists who came up with something disruptive for a public space. And he came up with one of his typical, oppressive, weighty, tremendously large steel sculptures called Tilted Arc. And it was 12 feet high, 120 feet wide, and it bifurcated Federal Plaza in New York. And before what was there was this hideous turquoise fountain that when it was windy would spray all of the passersby. And so that's why he got this commission because they, the plaza needed something that was a little bit more appropriate for the space and wouldn't get, get people wet. So it ended up being fantastically controversial because so many people felt really passionately about it. Some people hated it. They said that it was just this hideous eyesore. They didn't get it. And some people thought that it was this elegant, modern rendering, reimagining of sculpture. But it also, it posed some, some technical risk. For instance, if one person was on one side of it, 
theoretically somebody could be on the other side and they would be obstructed from view. And so it, it might heighten crime and people who were experiencing homelessness, they peed on the sculpture. And so it was, it definitely wasn't an easy fit in the plaza, but there was a controversy about this for eight years. And then finally in 1989, I think also interestingly, the year that the Berlin Wall fell, this wall was taken down in the middle of the night and all of the material was sent to a scrapyard. Wow. Well, you know, look, this, I'm from Manhattan, as you know, and it's a little weird to put up a wall anywhere. We have enough walls, you know, we have enough boundaries and obstacles and things that we have to overcome. Perhaps it was a metaphor for that. Uh, perhaps it was a metaphor for uh, overcoming. I don't know. But I remember this because I'm, I'm from Manhattan and I always just felt it was out of place. Personally, that's my personal thing. Because it obstructed view, hmm. you know, uh, specifically of the, if you were on the other side of the, uh, there was that, not the lake, the fountain, you know, and I feel like it obstructed view from that. Look, you know, I, I like Sarah's work. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a, huge fan like I am of a Giacometti or Brutaleschi, Michelangelo, Rodin, Verrocchio. There's so many great, great, great sculptors uh, that have graced us in this world. Camille Claudel, you know, there's so many wonderful sculptors. I'm, and I'm a little bit more of an academic lover, uh, but I appreciate Sarah and I appreciate the sentiments that his work means. And especially if you listen to him he's like you very articulate very cerebral he could he's excellent at explaining his perspective and his point of view sometimes i go wow that's you know he's really good with words you know but as opposed to you know and and i look at his work and i go i don't know if i see that if it translates but it doesn't matter because the exercise is process and the exercise is us thinking and imagining for ourselves whether this is art or whether it's not art. I feel like his importance is that he took sculpture into another dimension and direction as, as perhaps Warhol did with art. And I know that you're not a fan of Warhol. I don't think I'm really a fan either, but I feel like he was necessary in the history of art at least to have the conversation and to go through it. Much like Duchamp's urinal was necessary, right? We went all the way to this, you know, from new descending the staircase all the way to the urinal where we went, wow, we've arrived at a urinal being art. Oh my God. And I think that Sarah does that as well. Um, and, I, and, I, and especially when we deal with, and I'm sure you're going to bring this up with, with his, with his, objects that are even larger where it allows us to reflect on how insignificant we are in the world and how his statues or i call them statues his sculptures make us feel much like the universe does when we dwell at the stars but my question to you would be first of all is that his goal and secondly, is that important 
when we have the stars and the planets and the cosmos to gaze at? Do we need a oxidized, rusty slab of steel to remind us of how insignificant and fleeting our lives are? I think those are beautiful questions. And I loved the way that you framed that whole experience with Sarah and what you appreciate about him, but what you aesthetically don't naturally grok to. And I feel the same way, except that that belief of your own impermanence or your own significance or the realization of those things, that's what I think is so disruptive in an incredible way about his work. I think that any artist who makes us reimagine the confines of what art is, what art can be, and what art maybe shouldn't be for your own personal code of viewing, that is tremendously valuable. And I wouldn't necessarily want a Warhol in my apartment, but I see him as being an equivalent type of a tastemaker because he, he absorbed what it was that was happening and he spit it out in a totally heterodox way. And then it ultimately reshapes the course of art history. And I think that you're right to link Sarah's work sculpturally to Warhol's in a painterly space because Sarah really does the same. And those torqued ellipses that you mentioned, the works that are even bigger, perhaps they're not bigger, but they're contained in an indoor setting. And so they feel bigger because they don't have uh, when something is outside, it doesn't have a cap. It has no ceiling. It's limitless. It interacts with nature. It becomes nature. But when it's inside, then we have a container. And I grew up in these Sarah sculptures because there are many at LACMA. And I grew up in Los Angeles and I would always visit them. And I just remember feeling like I was the art, that I was inside the art. And being in a Sarah activated multi-senses for me. Traditionally, we look at a painting, let's say, or even a sculpture, and it's a one-point perspective. Perhaps you walk around, but you are still the dominating force within that exchange. But in a Sarah, you enter into it. And there is this feeling, almost this deleterious feeling that something bad is gonna happen to you, that your own vulnerable body could be harmed because the way that the steel bends and folds, it feels like it's gonna fall on you. And so there's a strategy of disorienting your viewer. Also, you smell the steel. And so I feel like my that kind of sensory is activated in a way that doesn't normally happen when you look at a marble statue. And so I just, I have bodily feelings of being inside a Sarah, and it's almost this wonderment of how art can unfold you. And I think your question of do we need this because we have the stars is a really provocative way of looking at anything. Do we need anything if we have nature to guide us in a similar direction? And I think that it's just context specific. So we have that outside, we have it at LACMA, we are always able to feel the wonderment of something that's bigger than ourselves. Yeah, but I think that Sarah's goal is to make us interact and feel that, which is, which is good because perhaps we're not, you know, we can't do that on our own unless we are 
gazing at a starry night stoned out of our mind or something and we go whoa i want to be really self-reflective right now you know but i think that he forces that to happen and through material through process so that we're seeing the you know the inside is the outside the inside of the tire is what we're experiencing is this is the is the we always look at the outside of the tire, but very few of us look at the inside of the tire. And I think that's kind of what he's making us experience, what he's forcing us to look at. We feel the process through the oxidation of the steel, through the rust of the steel. We feel the, the process because we're inside of the construction, not just on the outside versus what, right? We look at a painting, we see the finished product. Uh, oftentimes the most fascinating things about the paintings are the color keys, the value keys, the thumbnail sketches, the work up to the final painting as where we see the final painting oftentimes from a painter's perspective, it's kind of mundane and boring and it feels perfunctory and, and the fact that there's so much perfection, right? But when we get to see, uh, for example, I love Jericho, Raft of Medusa. I think it's one of the greatest paintings of all time. But I changed my mind when I saw his color keys. His little color keys are like little tiny paint sketches. And they were so full of life and energy and vigor that you could feel the process, right? Which is what Sarah's doing. He's taking us all the way to the process with almost, because you could see the next level of it is the like he could do a marbleized beautiful wall or a marbleized beautiful fulcrum or a marbleized beautiful whatever and that could be the final clean uh slick finished no process but that's not what he's doing so he's allowing us to perhaps see the a little insight into the experience leading up to leading up to it, you know, and it's like everything leading up to it is, is, is exciting, you know, and then, you know, when you get to orgasm, it's like, okay, well, now it's all over. So like, that's what the, that's the Jericho Raft of Medusa, right? So when you go back and you look at his paint sketch, you go, oh my God, that's so exciting. And it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. And it could be this, and it's going to be that. And there's all the possibilities exist. When you finish a painting, the possibilities are in front of you. That's it. So, and it's raw. The bottom line, I think we got to look at that, that word, raw, R-A-W. That is really what it is. It's raw. The material's raw. The process is raw. The experience is raw. And that, as artists, is what we're always trying to get back to. That's why drawings oftentimes could be more potent, more feral than a domesticated painting, mm. right? It's like a wild fauve animal as opposed to a domesticated fat couch potato painting that's how i think about it even in my own work i think that that is really valuable because there is something about the process where we aren't fully formed yet but we're in that that state of discovery what could be and what doesn't have to be refined and it's dominating it's oppressive but it's also gentle and quiet and so i think that the way that Sarah is able to embody all of these feelings 
And the way that he's able to exist within memory and movement is just such an exciting space for sculpture. No, he's, you know, I, I, I never really was a super duper uber fan until you spoke highly of him. And then I, you know, then I have to kind of take, I have to really process it myself and take it in and experience it. And, you know, the bottom line is he's a real artist. He, to me, he falls in the category of a Picasso. Picasso's the guy who really did it because he had to, because he loved it. And you saw the love, whatever it was, even if it was his crappy later work, right? You, the blue period was amazing. The rose period was amazing. His cubism was amazing. His early paintings, his academic paintings in Spain were amazing. And this, you know, his Greek mythological limited editions were, etchings were, were amazing. And then he did a lot of crap, whatever, who cares? Point being, you feel the love, you feel his artistry. He's a real artist. And I feel like Sarah is a real artist. Like he lives it, breathes it, does it. Uh, Massonnier, the, the, one of the greatest painters of France, we should do an episode on him, painted 10 to 12 hours a day and said, you have to sacrifice all domesticity for your art all your all your kids your wife Picasso did that I don't know if Sarah did that but he feels like he does like when you hear him talk he just lives it man he's a real artist so you you got to give it to him anyway I really appreciate you bringing him into the canon of art attack because he definitely uh it's definitely well deserved and if you guys don't know Sarah please look him up uh go out there into the world and and see him when the world opens up again hopefully in the next day or two you know the next couple of days or a couple of years go see a sarah in person <laughs> right all right guys peace thanks lizzie <laughs>